This is the NHS. This is the NHS Assembly. The NHS Assembly. NHS Assembly podcast. This is the NHS Assembly podcast. Hello, I'm Claire Gerarda, a GP and co-chair of the NHS Assembly. And I'm Simon Enright, Director of Communications for the NHS. But today we're here as podcast presenters to bring you another NHS Assembly podcast. So, in the next half hour, we'll tell you about what happened when the Assembly met in Manchester in September 2019 at the Health and Care Innovation Expo. And we'll hear about the new ways clinicians are finding to reach out to their communities and share with them the responsibility to keep healthy. We'll also give you an update on the NHS's plans to keep our services going in the event of Britain leaving the EU. And we'll hear from some inspiring people at the sharp edge of innovation in the NHS. We'll ask how we get each and every NHS staff member to play their part in improving healthcare. The NHS Assembly Podcast. This is the NHS Assembly Podcast. We're going to start with a discussion about shared responsibility in the NHS. Claire, so as co-chair, you put this topic on the agenda for the Assembly. Uh, Why did you choose this topic? Because it is something that's really important. This isn't about uh, shared decision-making, which is a different issue. It's about shared responsibility for precious resources within the NHS. So how can we, the public and health professionals and politicians, use this money wisely? How can we use it together? How can we best use the assets in our communities? How can we best encourage uh, our populations, people listening to this, to stay healthy, to engage in their own personal health care. So it's not just about doctors doing things to people, but us together helping to stay healthy for all of us. Let's hear from a speaker at the Assembly who made a lasting impression, I think, on all of us. He's Andy Knox, a GP who works in Carnforth in Lancashire, and he's also Director of Population Health in Morecambe Bay. He told the Assembly about the experiences that led him to change how he wanted to practice medicine. So about seven years ago, uh, I kind of reached the point of burnout. Um, Really hated my job, felt completely overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that was coming through my door and realizing I wasn't actually doing very much good at helping the community I was trying to serve. And it led me to kind of reflect on how useful I was being in my consulting room. And that has been my journey how to get out of my consulting room and out into my community, how to stop being so reactive and try and become proactive. It's kind of that battle royale that happened between Pasteur and Beauchamp in the 19th century in France. Are we going to be people who kill disease in order to create health? Or are we going to be people that build wellness so that disease is automatically far from us? And um, I believe we have to do both. I think we can't chuck away the wisdom of Pasteur. We've done some incredible things as a result of that wisdom. But we've ignored what it means to build wellness in our communities. And as a result, if we're honest with ourselves, if we look at what's going on in our communities right now, we are perhaps more segregated, more divided than maybe we've been in quite a long time in this country. And we would have to ask ourselves whether we are really well. Andy told the Assembly that to get the best healthcare means working closely with your community. It's absolutely vital that we stop trying to do things to people without them being involved. But it's also important that we hear the reality of their pain and what our communities are actually living in and with and through 
before we start to try and create too much sense of possibility and hope. So there's a little bit of learning to take the lanyards off our necks, step outside and sit with our communities and hear the pain of what's really going on. And then rather than then going back into our boardrooms, putting our lanyards on and trying to solve the problems for them, actually sitting with them, with humility enough to ask different kinds of questions and say, so what might we do about this together? I caught up with Andy after the session and asked him about what changes he was making in his area. One of the things that's started changing is how our community are thinking about health. So that's the first thing. So we had a conversation with our local town, started with a thousand people five years ago, and we shared with them some of the issues that we were facing in the NHS and some of the health inequalities that we see in our area. And they really cared about those things. And they wanted to start partnering with us to think about how they could also be more healthy and well. And we've seen amazing different projects develop. So um, mental health cafes develop and community choirs and walking groups and knit and natters and parent support groups and drug rehab in a different way. I mean, just honestly, initiative after initiative, food poverty clubs, all, all kinds of different things where the community stood up and said, OK, we want to begin to do things differently. We began new partnerships with schools, so we saw a fantastic set of relationships with head teachers in our area, and we started talking about some of the health issues we're facing in the next 50, 70 years, and how if we didn't make a difference in the lives of the kids now in terms of their health and well-being, how the heck were we ever going to change those statistics or tackle some of the health inequalities? And that then began to help the community realise that um, as doctors and nurses, we were human beings as well. And some of the demand that was coming through our door, they began to ask questions about were there things they could do differently? So they set up support groups between themselves for people, as I've said already, with mental health issues, but also respiratory health issues and diabetes. And we began to see people reversing their own diabetes. We began to see people phoning each other up to support each other with their asthma and various other bits and pieces. But to pull off that getting a better environment for health, you need to get others involved. Yes, 100%. How have you gone about doing that? So, for example, the police now recognise that they probably see 75% to 80% of what they're dealing with is low-level mental health. So, um, one of the things that we've done is try and partner up nurse practitioners in mental health with our police so that they go on a joint visit together and so rather than the police then taking people away and locking them up actually we're able to get people into the right services that they need or um, if we're going to deal with the massive issue that is adverse childhood experiences and childhood trauma we need a triple approach to that some of the stuff that we're seeing develop in Morecambe Bay and across Lancashire and Cumbria right now is how do we help people who've been through major traumas in childhood, by that I mean physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, verbal abuse, uh, having a pa parent who is a drug addict or an alcoholic or being incarcerated, there are so many things. But what's incredible is that three in every 30 of us have been through at least four of adverse childhood experiences. Now, when that happens, your risk of becoming an IV drug abuser, going into prison, having heart attacks, having cancer, having diabetes, having all kinds of different health problems in the future is absolutely massive. But if we can create environments where we help staff not judge people in the NHS when they see them and ask bigger, better questions, giving people a chance to talk about their story and what's happened to them rather than what's wrong with them, we open up a completely different conversation about the stuff that helps them get better. So 
it's about a much, much bigger conversation together in society about how we build well-being. And that means all of us. It doesn't just mean when you've got a problem, you come to the doctor and the doctor fixes it. It recognises that actually sometimes your issue in chronic pain, for example, has nothing to do with the physical cause and therefore taking a medication is never going to fix it. What fixes it is having someone hear your story and then maybe give you the right kind of psychological therapy, which then means that your physical pain disappears. It's a complete shift in our thinking about what it really means to be well and how we talk together as communities about how we build that wellness together. Claire, so what did the Assembly make of the things that Andy said? I think it got people really enthused about how we can change the mindset of ourselves, of people, of professionals and of, of communities. There was also a debate, well, how can we replicate what Andy's doing? And who should do this? Should it be GPs or teachers, for example, both of whom are very well trusted? But if we do, how do we get GPs and their busy working day out of their consulting room and into their local communities? There was also a debate about how do we get employers involved? Because after all, employers have a major role in enthusing and empowering their employees to stay healthy and to empower them uh, to take responsibility for their own health. This is the NHS Assembly podcast. The NHS Assembly podcast. Another place where big things are happening to bring healthcare professionals and the public together is Wigan. The council has created an informal deal with residents to make the town better for everyone. Dan Wellings, senior fellow at the King's Fund, told me what he'd learned about how the Wigan deal works. I think the first thing to say about the work that they've done in Wigan is it's a long-term project. It's a, it's a way of working more than anything else, which they've really tried to put in place over the course of six or seven years. It's less of the, um, we will do two, it's how can we work with people rather than doing two. What, what do you mean by that? Give us an example of working with rather than two. In some ways it's as simple as how do you see people? What's in their lives, rather than thinking what's the matter with them, what are their conditions, how do we treat what we think is wrong with them, it's understanding them in the context of their lives. And some people talk about asset-based approaches, which is probably a sort of jargonistic way of thinking, well, what are the strengths people have? What's going to make a difference in their lives? What do they like doing? Who's around them? Uh, what are their connections? What does their community offer them? And then really thinking about what are the solutions we can give that's going to make a difference to their lives. I think some people talk about the difference between what's the matter with you and the reverse of that is what matters to you. So did you see some examples of what matters to you happening in Wigan? So patients being treated differently. So a really interesting story we heard um, was around uh, a care worker that looked after older people um, and was trying to get them out of the house, trying to work on social isolation, mobility. And in Wigan, the town hall is very close to the MS. And they saw the care worker going in with older people to the MS to go shopping. And they said to the care worker, What are you doing? And they said, Well, look, you know, this is about getting them out of the house, uh, really important. It's about them spending time with other people. And they said, OK. Do they like going shopping? And they said, I don't know, I haven't asked them. And they said, okay, well let's ask them and then we'll see, depending on the answer they give, are there things that we, as a community, 
and that's really important, can start to provide that might work with them. So they went back and they asked them. Two months later, the, the worker came into the town hall, slightly ashen-faced, wanting to report an incident. They said, well, one of the people in my care has broken their ankle. And she said they were roller skating. Now, the really important part of this story actually is, is not the activity that they provided, was they said, okay, well, was that person able to make an informed decision about their, what you were doing? And she said, yes. They said, in which case, you're covered. Now, that's a really important because that person then went back to their team and said they mean it. They're not just talking about transformation. It's not rhetoric. It's not, oh, we really need to listen to patients or we need to involve people. We need to work with them in a different way. It was actually they meant it. And that's a really interesting lesson, I think, for the NHS around what is the culture. If you're looking up to regulators, to national bodies, and there's a, a culture where sometimes you can feel well, what if I get this wrong, and that's your primary concern, it's much more difficult to act on what the person in front of you needs. It's not easy, and I think Wigan would be the first to say, change of this kind, it takes time. Dan Wellings, thank you very much. Thank you. The NHS Assembly Podcast. This is the NHS Assembly Podcast. The discussion about shared responsibility for healthcare certainly got the Assembly thinking and talking about how we can create new partnerships between clinicians and patients. Let's get a sense of how the Assembly members reacted to what they heard. So I think the conversation has just reinforced for me the value of the voluntary sector, the importance of volunteers providing that informal community-based support, but also the really important role that charities have in connecting people to each other and allowing that kind of hope and inspiration that comes from shared conversations and shared experiences to really thrive. I think we're at a really important juncture uh, in the future of the health and care system and we've got a fantastic opportunity with our new five-year plans to put this shared responsibility approach at the heart of what we're doing. Like, say, for me to go to work, there's some structural barriers as a disabled person. To use health and social care, there's some structural uh, barriers. To um, live in the community and do leisure activities, there's st structural uh, barriers. So all of us play a part to close that gap in uh, inequality. And it was through this conversation that we had today, highlighted to me some of the infrastructure that needs to be in place to look at life chances for all. The shared environment is really, really challenging. We've heard some great examples today where people have done it with individual enthusiasm, reflecting their own communities. But the real challenge is how we do this at scale. Claire, let's pick up on that last point. We have these inspiring projects in Morecambe Bay and Wigan and lots of other places. How do we take them and spread the learning around to other areas? Such an important question, Simon. Actually, some Assembly members took the opportunity at the Expo to have an open workshop with much wider uh, representations of people, from the delegates from, from Expo, to explore innovation and how the health service and all of us can get better at embracing and, importantly, spreading new ideas. Let's hear from the people who led that session we're going to start with Neil Dixon, Chief Executive of the NHS Confederation and someone who has been watching the way the NHS works and moves for many years. I got him to set the scene by telling me what we mean when we talk about innovation. 
Now, the reality is there are only two ways of making organizations and services better. One is you do smarter things or you do things smarter. And doing things smarter is a really important aspect of how we will deliver what's in the NHS long-term plan. That means looking again at the pathways of care, reorganizing our services so that they become much more seamless to patients, but also much more efficient and effective. Innovation is about changing those pathways, finding new ways of doing things, making sure that the way that you organize the service that you're operating or the services you're operating are at the absolute cutting edge, they're at the most efficient level, and they are the best experience for patient and the best value for the service. You talk about challenges and opportunities. Are there risks for the NHS with innovation? It's not so much um, about uh, new te innovating and doing new things, because we do quite a lot of that. An awful lot of it is about adopting. So we're, the amount that we put in, compared with uh, uh, companies like Apple, we put far more into research and development and far less into how do you roll this out, how do you spread the word. And I think that's a really big innovative challenge. Now, of course, Rolling something out does not mean simply getting a cookie cutter out and trying to do the same thing again because all the experience suggests that organisations that try to do that, you get rebellion. People at the ground level do not want to be told you do this and you do it in that way. People need to interact themselves, they need to feel ownership of the process and so it's a question of of course if things, if there is the evidence to introduce something, then of course we should, we should absolutely support that. But it's also about getting the mindset within an organisation that says we're an innovative organisation in every level within the organisation, not just professional staff, managerial staff, ancillary staff, everybody should have a mindset of how do we do this better and how do we adopt new things but adapt as well in order to make them work. One of the people really inspiring innovation is Shafi Ahmed. He's a colorectal surgeon from Bart's, and he addressed the assembly. He's kind of known as a serial medical entrepreneur, and he told me about some of his methods. As a surgeon, I've always been involved in innovation from an early age, looking at new ideas, new techniques. I worked with many companies designing new instruments, for example, in America and other places. So I've always thought about how do we improve what's around us. In the end, I found basically that I found myself in a unique position now, where I'm using technology as interface, to improve the health outcomes and educate people differently. So I've been using virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, artificial intelligence, blockchain and sensors, all these kind of things to see how can we implement that change rapidly to improve the health of the patient and also ultimately making healthcare costs go down. Do you think there's a difference between those who've been in the NHS a long time and some of the younger generation? And if there is a difference with the younger generation, do we have to treat them in a different way? Absolutely. I think one thing is that we forget, as I'm now a senior clinician, I guess, is think about how we trained, what we went through. And there's a disconnect between our lives and the lives of people coming through the system now, and they are completely different. Let's take an example. Generation Z, a new generation of people coming through, they are not like we were, for example. They want a work-life balance. They want to be entrepreneurs. They want to have what's called portfolio careers, part-time jobs with other interests. They want to travel. They're tech savvy. So what we're driving is these people to adopt the same jobs that we have that are fit for purpose. For example, we advertise jobs all the time in the NHS. 
SHOs in surgery or medicine, whatever. And often we find that no one's applied for the job, no one turns up to interview, and it gets unfilled. We require locums to fill the spot. That means those jobs are not fit for purpose. I'll give an example. So I had the same problem. We had difficulty in appointing people. So I re-advertised the jobs as an innovation fellow. They spent one or two days innovating, doing some work around innovation, and three days clinical. That job I advertised had 450 applications in one day. You're just changing the way that you design the jobs for. You can't now say to people, this is SHO job, one in three on call for whatever it is. They are not interested. So we're not adapting to this new generation. And it's both at work and also for the curriculum has not been redesigned to encompass this new way of thinking and to bring the best out of these people. Because if you want the NHS to survive for 30, 40 years, these people need to be empowered and use all their skill sets. Otherwise, they'll be leaving in their droves. You say you're hopeful for the future of the NHS. Why? What makes you so hopeful at the moment? I'm really excited by the future we're going to be living in. The future is going to evolve so rapidly in the next 10, 20 years, it will be completely unrecognisable. So I'm very optimistic that what we have now is a potential of what we call abundance in the world. There's more abundance than there was 10 years ago. And that abundance, surely for us, will mean that healthcare could be more accessible, more equitable, and ultimately more affordable, which is what we all want to aspire to. Thank you very much. This is the NHS Assembly Podcast. The NHS Assembly Podcast. So, not surprisingly, one of the things we decided at the previous Assembly is that we simply had to talk about Brexit. We felt the Assembly needed to hear about the plans that the NHS is making to keep patients safe in the event of a no-deal Brexit. Professor Keith Willett is the NHS's strategic commander for EU Exit. He addressed the Assembly and then he told me about how the NHS has been preparing over the last year. The preparations have been very extensive. Uh, enormous amount of work has been done by the Department of Health and Social Care, who are the government, who, government department responsible for preparing the uh, NHS and the healthcare sector. And I have to say, going into the April deadline, all the 400 NHS organisations were either declaring themselves as green, fully prepared, or they were amber but had a plan to get to green. And that was, uh, I think, very impressive. Is there something you would encourage people to do, frontline members of staff uh, of the NHS to do, to make sure we prepare for the event of a no-deal Brexit? Absolutely. There is a responsibility on NHS staff to do the right thing if we run into problems. To turn and face the information that's being offered, to understand it and put themselves in the very best position to do what the NHS has to do as a non-political organisation and focus on the best way to support our patients, care for our patients and to continue to provide the services that we are charged with doing. So I think for me that would be my ask of the NHS staff. And I've got one more ask and that's around the EU nationals who make up 6 or 7% of our workforce. Those people are vital to the NHS and I think it's very important that we do fully respect how they may be feeling and make sure that they do feel wanted and how important they are to the NHS. Keith Willett, thank you very much. The NHS Assembly Podcast. This is the NHS Assembly Podcast.
Claire, we were at the Health Expo in Manchester. Did that make a difference to the feel of the Assembly? Well, it did for me. It was actually the very first time I'd been to Expo, despite working in the NHS for decades. And I felt an overwhelming sense of pride that I was around people who are all working towards the same aim, that is, the NHS. And so when we had the assembly, which was a separate meeting within Expo, it just continued that feeling. And I think it also allowed us to hear from a much wider group of people in the two separate workshops that we held under the assembly banner. Let's hear again from some of the Assembly delegates and what they've learned from their time here in Manchester. I think I've learned a number of things from today's conversation. Um, I think one is about the importance of a culture change in that the power is not all held with healthcare professionals. Patients themselves are experts by experience and that power needs to be more distributed and shared. I think the other thing is that actually funding and power go hand in hand and at the moment there's a there's a kind of an imbalance with so little funding actually going into community development what the assembly reinforces for me is the importance of actively listening and engaging with people from really diverse backgrounds because diversity brings real strength i find and i love to be challenged you know intellectually and um, on the approaches that we're trying to take so that things can be better. And the Assembly, I think, allows that to happen in a really good, positive way. So for being part of the Assembly, I've learned that there is much to debate as always. It's been a great group of people. The diversity around the room is fantastic. What's interesting is that we coalesce with a similar sort of view on the way forward and how we can change things. The problem is how we then implement that, how we then take that to make changes within the health and care system, how we support the delivery of the NHS long-term plan and how that is reflected in the delivery to patients in the front line. Claire, a bit of a challenge there. What are you and Chris going to do to build on all the great conversations but make sure the Assembly has some real-world impact? Yeah, I mean, it is important that we take the what we hear in the Assembly and actually use that to support the implementation of the long-term plan, because that's, after all, what we're here to do. The Assembly is a group of some of the most informed individuals that I've collectively worked from, not I've worked with people on, on councils who are all doctors or been to meetings where we're all managers. But what the Assembly brings is this depth and breadth of knowledge and experience. And that is what we take forward to the NHS executive. So whilst we have no authority or power to, to, uh, to tell the NHS executive what to do, what we have is considerable influence based on those 50 or so voices who bring with them the, 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 the eyes and ears of the NHS in which they work and some of which get care from. That is all we have time for for this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and it gave you food for thought. If you have ideas or comments on the subjects raised, you can share them with us on Twitter, hashtag NHS Assembly. We will be back after the next Assembly in December. Thanks, Simon, and thanks everyone for listening. The NHS Assembly is working for everyone. So please tell anybody you think would be interested about our podcast so they can listen to it as well. Bye for now. 
You can keep up to date with the NHS Assembly, our podcast and further reading by visiting longtermplan.nhs.uk and click on NHS Assembly to subscribe. Thank you.